1: Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Colin Adams, a mathematics professor at Williams College, who has written a book whose title juxtaposes two words that probably have never been juxtaposed in the history of the English language. Those two words are zombies and calculus. And by a coincidence, zombies and calculus is the title of his book. I think it can be safely said that no one has ever written a book quite like this. Colin, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Jim. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And Colin, I have a confession to make. When I saw the title of your book, my first reaction was, huh? I'm an old guy, and I'd only heard the word zombie in two contexts. Back in the 1950s, there was a Calypso song called Zombie Jamboree. And also, I grew up in Chicago, where there was a Polynesian restaurant called Don the Beachcomber. I wasn't old enough to drink at the time, but they had a drink called a zombie that I noticed on the menu, and I later found out that it consisted of fruit juices, liqueur, and rum. So for the benefit of those in our audience who may be starting out from the same knowledge base as I was, please describe what zombies are and what motivated you to use them in writing this book.
0: Um, Zombies are actually just humans who have been infected with a virus, and the virus is a virus that's passed... um, Through one person to another by being bitten by another infected individual. So it's very similar in some sense to rabies. Um, And it mimics rabies in the sense that once infected, uh, the person that you were disappears and you become something else entirely. Something driven by a hunger for human flesh, as it turns out. Um, And pretty much all of the various takes on zombies share this much in common. Um, but beyond that, they diverge. For many, zo- for many um, authors, zombies are dead creatures that have been reanimated by the virus so they could function even though, in fact, their hearts don't beat. They are truly dead in the normal sense. Um, for the sake of the book that I wanted to write, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I wanted my zombies to be realistic. And in the sense that they're human beings who've been infected, and although much of their brains have been liquefied, they're still alive. And therefore, they can be killed without having to necessarily destroy their brains. Um, Why did I want to use this idea for a book like this? Um, Well, I love to think about fun ways to get math across. I I really want people to listen long enough to see the beauty of the math involved. And there already was a book out there that's called uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, um, and in it, the author took the original manuscript for Pride and Prejudice um, by Jane Austen. And since it's no longer copyrighted, he could take it as is. And then what he did is he manipulated that manuscript and added in zombies. In fact, he also added in ninjas. Um, so it's it's quite a concoction. Um, and, and his goal was for young readers who might find uh, Jane Austen a slog, um, by juicing it up in this way, He made it, he made it more exciting for them. And I thought, gee, couldn't I do that with mathematics? Couldn't we use an idea like zombies in order to get across the mathematics. And it turns out that that uh, that's a really good topic for it because there are all these applications of mathematics to uh, zombies and, and fighting zombies. Well,
1: Colin, I absolutely agree with you that one of the things that we want to do is make mathematics more appealing to those of us to those who are studying it and this is certainly a unique way of doing it i don't want to give away the plot except to say that you've written it almost as if it were a novel there are plot elements such as romance intrigue characterizations and humor things you don't often find in a book with the word calculus in the title perhaps you'd like to give our listeners a short plot synopsis sort of like a movie trailer
0: sure So uh, the book actually opens with a math professor who's named Craig Williams, who teaches at a small college in Western Massachusetts called Roberts College, and he's teaching a calculus course on the first floor of a building, and he looks out the building window, and he sees one of his perennially late students, Charlie, um, coming into class, shambling into class, and he thinks to himself, oh boy, Charlie, always late, and he waits for Charlie to come in, but Charlie doesn't come in. So finally, he goes to the door, and he opens the door, and he says, Charlie, you're going to join us? and there's just something wrong with Charlie. He's just not, he just doesn't look right. And, but Charlie shambles in and, and the professor says, here, why don't you take a seat at the front? And instead of taking a seat at the front, he falls upon Megan sitting in the front row. And this is the beginning of the zombie apocalypse descending on Roberts college. And from there on out, um, the story is really the story of Craig Williams and how he has used calculus to try to protect himself and his small band of survivors from the zombies. Um, and uh, he's trying to save his children. He's trying to save some students, some faculty, and just trying to figure out how best they can survive under the circumstances. And there are all these opportunities where calculus actually helps. Uh, Colin, it's a very,
1: very intriguing book. It's intriguing in a number of ways. and. Rarely do you see someone who is a mathematician actually sit and write a novel. Well the yeah, uh the only one that occurs to me wasn't really a novel because it uh it it was um and it also I'm sorry, it wasn't really a mathematician, it was Carl Sagan. Um who wrote Contact, and uh, that was, I thought that was an excellent novel. Yours is a different type, but did you have an interest in writing when you were younger?
0: I did. In fact, I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be a mathematician. So when I was young, uh, I used to do a lot of writing on the side, and, and, and when I went to college, I was thinking I'd, I'd go into writing, but as it turned out, I ended up going to MIT um, and uh, started taking some math courses, and I fell in love with mathematics. And so I put off the writing and and put it off for many, many years until I was a junior faculty member at Williams College. Um, And then I decided uh, I'd like to do some writing. And so I wrote some short stories, nothing to do with math, and published my first story in the Williams Literary Review. Um, And then uh, I I started writing about math and doing some humorous math stories. And uh, I actually went to an editor and said, gee, can we publish this as a book? And instead, she suggested that I become the humor columnist for a an expository math magazine called The Mathematical Intelligencer. And so I've been writing uh, stories for them uh, once a quarter, uh, now for about 15 years, and I published a book of those short stories, in fact, and so I I, I always really enjoyed uh, the idea of writing and how it might apply to mathematics, and so when I came up with this idea for Zombies and Calculus, I thought, oh, this, this is perfect, because this is just the kind of thing that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to write a novel, um, but to do it in the context of mathematics really made it fun for me.
1: Uh, As I said, it's an extremely intriguing book. And in the preface to the book, which is written in the first person by someone who has survived the zombie apocalypse, that's Professor Williams, and done so through the use of calculus, you say the book is not for the squeamish. And I must admit, when I read that, my heart sort of skipped a beat because I'm a little squeamish. But the truth is that there's really very little in the writing style that would really upset someone who's squeamish. Most of what might be considered squeamish is more comical or funny than anything else.
0: I'm glad you found it that way. Um, I was concerned that somebody who might pick up this book who saw the calculus and thought, oh, okay, here's a sort of fun math book might not be prepared for some of the death and destruction that occurs in any zombie book. And so I, I wanted to give people a little bit of warning about that. This is not your standard uh Book that is you know uh, something appropriate to a high school student who who knows a little calculus, unless they like zombies, because because uh, I don't want someone to pick it up and, and be horrified by the fact that that bad things do happen in the book. Um, you know, believe it or not, the average calculus book doesn't have a single death or dismemberment in it.
1: Um, actually, that is sort of interesting, but I think they do have death um, in a context that I'll discuss later when we get to some of the uh, some of the mathematics involving um, the spread of epidemics. But one of the things that I found interesting about the book is that there's a lot of medical science in it. And in view of such things as flu and Ebola, it's relevant medical science. That made the book a lot more realistic than if you simply said, and then a zombie bit off Marsha's arm. Is there any scientific basis for zombies, or are they a complete myth like the boogeyman?
0: Um, You know, the version of zombies that I used um, actually isn't that far from from the way many diseases behave uh, today. So in particular, I mentioned rabies before, Uh, you know, when you think about what rabies does to somebody where it, it, you know, infects the body, it goes up to, passes through the blood brain barrier, and then has these very negative effects on, on the cognitive abilities, which then in the case of animals, you know, can, can make them crazy enough to attack other animals and do things that they normally wouldn't do. Well, that's really what we picture when we think of what happens with a zombie. And, Um, I wanted the zombies that I was dealing with in this book to be um, of a type that we could model with some of the famous models that are used for modeling epidemics, and so that was one of the reasons why I set it up in the way that I did. Um, uh, Many of the other zombie models don't work that way, so for instance, uh, for for many of the zombies, the zombie itself doesn't ever have to take sustenance. It doesn't actually need food and it just continues to live on and the flesh continues to live on. And the only thing that really can kill a zombie is if it's um, shot in the head or if somehow the brain is destroyed and otherwise the zombie will keep coming. And to me, that was too unrealistic. A lot of the models for both disease infection within the body and for how an epidemic spreads uh, didn't work as well in that scenario. So I did have to change it around a little bit well
1: i think the nice thing was that the zombies are more realistic but they're not really frightening and i i agree that it was probably a good idea to put that word of warning in at the start but i'd like to say to anybody who might be tempted who might be a little uh put off by the word zombies don't be the book is not you know you won't spend sleepless nights after having read it um And now let's get down to the math, because this is, after all, a book featuring calculus. What level of mathematics do you think would enable a reader to follow the math comfortably? I should note that there are sections in the back of the book which expound further on the calculus that is developed in the course of the main novel.
0: Yeah, when I was writing the book, I was picturing someone who had seen calculus at some point before, and that could mean 40 years before, that could mean recently, but I was picturing somebody like that. Um, uh, but I did, as you say, I did put a whole long appendix in the back of the book that really goes over all of calculus. So if someone had never seen it before, they could still read it there and they would get a lot out of it. They could, they could read that appendix and get a lot out of it. Um, but otherwise, I was picturing that. And in addition to calculus, I also use multivariable calculus, which follows calculus. Um, But I wasn't assuming that people had seen that, so I tried to write that material in a way that someone who'd only seen some of the calculus would also still be able to understand that further material. Uh, Somebody who's had both calculus and multivariable calculus would have a a very easy time of understanding the material, and it would be kind of a a refresher for them to see that material again and see it in in the particular context of zombies. Um,
1: I like the idea of you're trying to get in touch with uh, two different audiences, those who have seen calculus a long time back and those who are currently seeing calculus. My feeling is that this is when I when I saw this book, I said, aha, summer read for a math student or at least one taking calculus, because It's nice in a variety of ways, but I must admit you have a, uh, uh, you have a higher opinion of people who haven't seen math for a long time than I do, because (laughs) I don't know about your students, but, um, my, my, uh, advisor used to say students always remember, always learn the mathematics that they saw the, uh, the semester before. But what I've learned is that if you don't have really diligent students, they forget the mathematics they'd seen the semester before. And if you give them 40 years, they've probably forgotten a lot of it.
0: Well, my, my theory is that you're right. They, they probably forget a lot, but it's, it's in there very deeply embedded. And, and if you can trigger those memories by giving stories that, that Create situations where calculus is used and they might say, Oh yeah, I do remember that. That that is triggering some memory. So 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 assuming you haven't been bitten by a zombie and had your brain liquefied, you still have those memories deep inside there and you can pull them back out again. Um one of the things I did in the book, which I which I thought was worked pretty well, was when the math started getting more difficult, when it got more uh uh involved. I would put a little mark in the book, which was a little bloody hand mark, which said you could go to an appendix and continue the conversation there. And then in that appendix, the more heavy-duty math was listed. And then you could come back to where you had been in the book once you've gone through that heavy-duty appendix. But for those people who were less comfortable with the math, they could just read the text and skip over the appendices, just not not leave the text where they were. And it made it more readable for those people who were less comfortable with the higher-level mathematics.
1: Yeah, I think a device like that is an excellent idea because what you're going to do is you're going to get a, you know, you're going to get a spectrum of mathematical competence in reading this book. And having that bloody handprint there to direct people who are really interested in going into it more deeply, as I'm sure some of the people who read it will, is a good idea. And I would like to touch on something that you just said, which I firmly believe. I believe that if you teach mathematics in a context that makes it Memorable. Um, it uh, various different things can trigger it. I mean, I, I the first book that I ever really read that involved mathematics to any extent was the classic One, Two, Three Infinity mm. by George Gamow, and there are still a lot of things that I remember from that book. Um, admittedly, I went into mathematics, but having read it, he had a number of anecdotes. He starts off with, you know, uh, he starts off with. Um, uh, what we now call the Tower of Hanoi problem, but was called, I think, the Golden Needles of Brahma or something yes. like in the book. And I remember that the moment uh, I hadn't really encountered the Tower of Hanoi problem until I started teaching a computer course, maybe 35 years later, and I saw it and I said... OMG. Well, I didn't say OMG because that <laughs> acronym hadn't been invented at the time. But what happened was it triggered this it triggered the incident with the uh, golden needles of uh, Brahma that I read in in the George Gamma book, and that often happens. And that's one of the things that I like about your book. It makes things, you know, it makes mathematical incidents so memorable that people will be able to connect to the mathematical incident because they'll think of something in the book and so i applaud you for doing that because i think that's a great idea
0: oh well, i'm I'm glad that you felt that way I, I mean it's certainly true for me too that there were these certain books that i read when i was young you know before i decided to become a mathematician and 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 the there are certain vivid situations that just stick to me stick with me to this day it's really it's really a, a good way to get people to remember some of these ideas in fact, that's probably true
1: for one of the great things that literature does for all ideas. And also, I must admit, this is, this is far afield, but there are uh, there are a few classic quotations that have stuck with me for a lifetime, and you have absolutely, you know, and just, it's amazing, you know, it's amazing the frequency with which they show up. And one of my all-time favorites, which I think is due to Claire Boethlis, is No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. That comes up so often, it's just just amazing. But anyway, let's get to some of the fascinating topics with regard to calculus that you discuss in the book. Some of them you see in a standard calculus course, and some of them you don't. If it's all right with you, I'd like to go through the chapters in the order they appear in the book and discuss some of the calculus content. If you like, you can tell the listeners how the topic fits into the book's plot, and if you prefer, we'll leave them in suspense. Okay. Okay, so the book starts off with the discussion of the slope of the tangent line and how the steepness of the tangent correlates with the growth rate of the function. Although this is traditionally where many calculus texts start, I've always wondered where in the history of the development of calculus it actually came up. I'm not sure that you're all that familiar with the history of mathematics. I'm a little, uh, I'm sort of deficient in it, but maybe you know your research had uncovered something.
0: Yeah. So, so the idea of um, thinking of the slope of the tangent line as something relevant, you know, where the slope, uh, if you have a curve and you've got a a tangent line that's just touching that curve, and the slope of that line is telling you how fast the function is increasing or decreasing, increasing if the slope of that line is positive, decreasing if the slope of that line is negative. Um, I think it actually predates the, the two people who are most famous in the development of calculus, which is Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz, that in fact... Um, people like Pierre de Fermat was actually already looking at that, and some of the uh, other mathematicians who were looking at the differential calculus before uh, Newton and Leibniz did so, um, uh, they actually looked at this idea and used it uh, to great effect. So it's one of the older ideas in calculus, uh, one of the earlier ideas, in fact. You know
1: that's interesting because when you said Fermat the guy that I thought you were probably going to uh, uh going to bring in was not Fermat but Descartes because Descartes actually was the guy who came up with analytic geometry and I don't think it you know I don't think you can really talk about the slope of a line without discussing it from the framework of analytic geometry but maybe you can I mean you can discuss it in terms of the slope of the line is the tangent of the angle that uh it intercepts with the x-axis, and I guess you can discuss steep- steepness in terms of things such as trigonometry, which were probably known at the time.
0: Yes, no, I think that's right, but I do think uh, Descartes was also um, involved in that, that early development Okay.
1: Um, anyway, after you bring up the idea of uh, the uh, the slope uh, uh, the slope of the tangent line, the next thing that comes up is very natural. It's a discussion of exponential growth rates, and it represents the first real discussion of how calculus applies to zombies. Yes.
0: Yeah, so uh, you know, of course, as the zombie apocalypse begins and a, a couple people get infected. Right then, at that point, there's unlimited resources as far as the zombies are concerned. Namely, there's all kinds of people that they can both eat for sustenance and convert to zombies. And so you see this incredible growth rate on the part of the zombies. And that's where the exponential growth first comes from, just in the number of zombies that you're going to get as time goes on. And, and, and you see this process where the number doubles or triples every hour, every, you know, uh, every two hours, it quadruples. And and in a phenomenon like that, that is, that is really what exponential growth is. And you can understand that through differential equations, through a very simple equation that says the rate of growth is proportional to the number of zombies that you have in any given time. And that, that particular equation then results in this exponential growth. Um, I'm going to
1: save this point for later because we are developing this in the order in which the book comes. But one of the things that I really liked is um, how... You started off with the exponential growth model and then modified it later as circumstances warranted, and we'll get to that when uh, the time comes. But the next chapter after that features a basic discussion on velocity, acceleration, and force from physics, which is, of course, one of the standard early and most important applications of calculus. And I'm guessing Newton didn't anticipate the examples you used to illustrate his ideas.
0: Yeah, no, that's probably true. Um, Yeah, so... so, uh, In this part of the book, we're actually looking at some applications of calculus to physics. And in particular, the situation that the various uh, survivors are discussing is whether or not they could get enough force up by putting a paperweight into a stocking and swinging it around, whether they could get up enough force to knock out a zombie. And so they have to kind of understand how those forces work and, and, and exactly um what would happen when you swing that in a circle when you swing that paperweight in a circle and and so they have a discussion of that and it, it gives an opportunity to actually talk about these questions of of velocity acceleration and force and it's also sort of interesting that you discuss a uh
1: well admittedly because it's natural to put the paperweight inside the stocking and swing it around i think you know david was probably the first guy who did that <laughs> yes. um, but it wasn't a stocking and uh you know it's a different thing but it was interesting because almost invariably in a calculus book, what they're discussing is they're discussing linear velocity and linear acceleration. And you discuss it in the context of a circular model, which is of course, extremely important. And, um, the idea of circular motion and, uh, the resulting uh you know the resulting vectors that are associated with it are things that I think should be brought up earlier in a calculus course because a physics student encounters them very early and the mathematical treatment that you see in a standard calculus text um it handles just the linear situation and I remember when I was a physics situa- physics student And they came in with a circular model. I said, ooh, what's going on here? I didn't get it at all. So I think it's a nice thing that you do to bring that up.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I like it too. And I I felt the same way in physics that I felt that, that this is something that is definitely extremely important. And it doesn't get talked about enough in calculus. And yet in physics, it's very important um the next thing
1: that came up was the topic of the normal distribution and once again i'm sure that gauss didn't have your example in mind
0: yeah no i'm sure he doesn't so in the book the normal distribution comes up in the sense that uh the normal distribution being the distribution that looks like a bell curve and uh it comes up in the context of how fast people can run and so they're having a discussion the various survivors are having a discussion about who's going to survive and who isn't going to survive and because of the fact that you expect that the the speeds that various people can run are normally distributed about the mean there's going to be a tail end of that distribution a group of people who just don't run fast enough to escape the zombies and therefore they are candidates for essentially being eliminated That, that that what one of the people says is these are people we shouldn't bother to try to save because of course they're never going to be able to escape in the long run and it's not worth our effort to try to help them
1: um you know something when you say something like that I uh, and I was reading that I realized you were discussing it in the context of zombies but Uh, I've had a lot of experience in education. I'm over 70. And one of the things that struck me was that there's an application of this, although probably not realized, to the philosophy that was pervading education in the early portion of this century and maybe even still does, because I'm now out of that, the idea of no child left behind. Because what happened in practice in the no child behind classrooms is that a lot of the resources got devoted to those children who simply weren't going to be able to benefit from it and just like you're you know uh you don't want to discuss uh you don't want to devote your resources to people who can't escape the zombies um the same thing, you know, it, it's interesting because it occurred to me that um, uh, had you written this book about 10 or 15 years early and some people had seen it, they might have had different thoughts about uh, how to approach educational philosophy.
0: Ah huh, well that that's an interesting take on it that's 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 interesting yeah no i think i think the whole idea of the bell curve in general normal distributions and statistics is just fascinating and it has so many applications and and it's often misunderstood so i think it's it's well worthwhile to try to 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 include opportunities to to talk about those subjects
1: uh, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I've always found fascinating is how the normal distribution models so many different actual phenomena. Um, while discussing the bell curve, you're probably aware that there was a very controversial book written in the last century called the bell curve in the 1990s. What do you consider to be the reason that the normal distribution is so prevalent?
0: Um, I guess it's really because if you you know think about so many different situations where you have some average that uh, you're shooting for, let's say, and and you miss that average that you're gonna get this this tail off to either side. That will make that nice bell curve. So, for instance, if you're, you know, throwing a dart at the number line and you're aiming for the origin and you're going to hit a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right, and then and then it's going to be much less common if you're going to hit further to the left and further to the right or even further to the left and further to the, left, to the right. And so when you finally look at the distribution of those points you've hit, you always get this, this bell-shaped curve. And if you can manipulate how wide the bell is and how high the bell is, you've really captured a tremendous number of situations in that normal distribution I think so, and I think one of the re uh, one of the things that occurred
1: to me I didn't take as much statistics as I should have when i was uh when I was in school, but when I read about the central limit theorem and the fact that when you look at averages of distributions. When you look at samples consisting of averages, that's what the central limit theorem says tends to the bell-shaped curve. And you look at all the different um, all the different qualities that we see that are reflected in the bell curve, something such as intelligence, you think that there are probably so many different inputs to intelligence that intelligence is some, well, at least I thought it, um, that intelligence is sort of an average of a whole bunch of different things that you can do and maybe that's the reason that because it's an average of so many different inputs, and these things tend towards the uh, bell-shaped curve, as the central limit theorem says, that maybe that's an explanation for why such physical, uh, physical parameters such as intelligence do tend to be normally distributed.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Okay. Anyway, um next up is that you spend a lot of term a lot of time discussing pursuit curves. The first of which is the radiodrome. You discuss both its classical antecedent and the situation you use in the book.
0: Yeah, this is this is one of the applications that I really like the most. And it was part of what motivated me to write the book in the first place was this idea that if a zombie is chasing you, um, what it's going to do, assume, for instance, that you're cutting across in front of the zombie. So you're heading for a building to try to reach safety and the zombie has to decide where to aim in order to catch you. Now, what a zombie is going to do, and this also holds true for for animals that aren't very sophisticated, is uh, it's going to head straight at you all the time. What it should do in order to try to catch you is it should head in front of you to try to cut you off because then it can shorten the distance it has to travel in order to capture you. But it doesn't do that because it's not smart enough to do that. And it always heads straight for you. And because of that, the way we would say it mathematically is that its tangent vector is always pointed at you. And because of that, um, you you have a chance to escape that you otherwise might not have. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea of what curve is generated when that zombie is, is always headed straight for you as you're going in a straight line path. What curve results? And that is the curve you just mentioned, the radiodrome, which is this linear pursuit curve. And one of the things that I uh
1: when I read that um I remember because I was continually remembering the way the book developed as I read it, and at the start, when you introduced the idea of the tangent line, and then all of a sudden went to exponential growth, well, velocity, acceleration, and force, and then to exponential growth models, um, I sort of thought, well, why did he bother to introduce the idea of the tangent line? And then all of a sudden, when the radio drone came up, I said, "Got it. That's why he did." <laughs> <Yeah. it." laughs> yep. And. I must admit, um, I'd never seen the word "radio drone" before, and the curve that it reminded me of was the tractrix, which is the path that an unwilling dog follows on a leash if the owner walks along and constantly keeps the leash tight.
0: Yeah, they're very similar curves, but they're different. But they're very similar. It's very interesting. So, so in the case of the tractrix. Um, as you say, I, I like the way of describing it in terms of an unwilling dog being dragged along by the leash. The only difference is it's true for the dog that its tangent vector is also pointed straight at the individual who's pulling the leash, the master who's pulling the leash. But the difference is that the distance between that dog and the master is the length of the leash, and that's fixed throughout. So the thing that doesn't change on the track tricks is the distance between the puller and the pullee. Um, in the case of the zombie... The zombie is always headed straight for you, but the thing that's constant is not the distance between you and the zombie, it's the zombie's speed. So the zombie has a fixed speed, and that's what determines the path that that zombie goes along, together with the fact that the tangent vector always has to point toward you. In the case of the dog, it is that the tangent vector always has to point to you, but the distance between the dog and the owner has to stay fixed. So they're they're slightly different curves. when I uh the radiodrome is
1: a linear pursuit curve, but you next discuss the more complex case of a circle pursuit. I'd never seen this done in a calculus class or in a calculus book, and it was one of the reasons that I enjoyed your book. It introduced calculus tidbits that I hadn't seen before.
0: Yeah, no, I really like this idea. And this was actually an idea that I got out of another book, which is a, a wonderful book called Chases in Pursuits by Paul Nahan. And He talked about this problem, which goes all the way back to the 1600s, where um, uh, you have somebody or something moving in a circle and then something chasing that particular thing that's moving in a circle. And the question is, what path will ultimately the pursuer end up on in trying to catch the particular object that it's chasing? And the original problem was actually described in terms of a fly moving on the Boundary of a circular pane of glass and a spider trying to catch that fly, uh, and then subsequently it was changed into a problem where you have a duck swimming around the the outside of a circular pool and a dog trying to catch the duck. Uh, the dog swimming in the pool after the duck. And the really interesting part to me is that if you have this situation where the 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 predator is always pointed straight at the prey, so again the tangent vector is always pointed at the prey. Then ultimately what happens, no matter where the predator starts it will always end up on a circle of a smaller radius than the than the prey is on, assuming that the prey is moving faster than the predator. And so you will always get this, um, any one of the predators always ending up on that circle. Now, in the context of the zombies, uh, the situation in the book is that the um, student Angus is running, riding in a circle on a bike and trying to get all the zombies to chase him. And ultimately all of the zombies who are all over the quad end up chasing him and they... As they're chasing them, they get closer and closer to ending up on the same circle and, in fact, in the same spot on the same circle. So they all group together in a clump following after the bicyclist. And once they do that, then, then the people who were under attack can escape. I know. I thought that was extremely ingenious and I liked it. And then um,
1: what you had set up in the early portion of the book with the exponential growth model, the zombies are starting to deplete the number of people that are available as food. And so you next hit one of my favorite topics for a calculus class, logistic growth.
0: Yeah, I like that topic a lot, too. I mean, this is, you know, it It's easy to envision this idea of the exponential growth initially, but of course, ultimately, as you say, the resources run out. In this case, the resources are us, humans. Um, and, and so you can't sustain exponential growth. You can never sustain exponential growth. And so then the question is what, what actually happens when you can't sustain exponential growth? And it has to, after you get that initial fast increase, it has to start to tail off and it starts to kind of approach an asymptotically uh, a, a level um, that is the greatest that it can become, and so, uh, and and that's something that you see in a lot of different situations in terms of drug dosages, in terms of uh, variety of different applications in the real world, and then you also can see it in the case of of the growth in the number of zombies. Yeah, one of the things that um, I
1: enjoy about logistic growth is it does come up in a bunch of different situations that you sort of wouldn't expect. For instance, you'll you can see it in spread of a rumor. Um, because once the, you know, once the people are exposed to the rumor, um, they've heard the rumor. And so the number of people, new people available to hear it is, uh, is limited. So, uh, I've always enjoyed that problem. It's one of the problems that I always assign out of the textbook that I use. So, um, maybe if your textbook gets adopted, we can switch to zombies. <laughs> uh, That'd be great. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, um, Another thing that I uh, really found to be very valuable and important about the book was that you hit the topic that had important applications beyond those involving the zombie apocalypse and that are especially relevant today when we are concerned about Ebola and we are concerned about flu, the idea of systems of differential equations. And it appeared to me that some of your discussion was modeled on the kermack mckendrick model for the spread of an epidemic.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. Um, you know, I, I've always been very intrigued by the the Kermack-McKendrick model and the so-called SIR models, uh, which stands for susceptibles, infected, and removed. Where you think about a population where where people are susceptible to the disease, or they have been infected by the disease, or they have either recovered or died from the disease, which means removed and can't get it again under those circumstances. And that model has been incredibly useful in epidemiology for many many years. And so I wanted to be able to talk about that model in In this particular uh, um, book that I was writing, and so i I wanted the disease to be the disease in this case being the zombie virus that you get by being bitten. I wanted it to be a disease that that could be modeled by that particular system. And as you say, nowadays with ebola and and HIV and uh, West Nile, various other diseases, this is a, a really important um, uh, idea and one that that it's really important that students understand how it works.
1: Um, I don't know whether or not this goes far, uh, goes too far afield and is out of uh, out of uh, the area that you're familiar with. Because sometimes when we study the mathematical models, we study a few standard situations. But I know I'm getting older. I get flu shots every year, mostly on the insistence of my wife. A friend of mine who's a doctor says that they just immunize you against last year's flu. But. Um, one of the things that has always fascinated me was the Spanish flu epidemic that immediately followed uh, World War I. You're probably familiar with it. Yes. Um, it killed something like 100 million people beating the Black Death, as far as I know. I don't think the Black Death did. Uh, uh, well, it didn't have as many people to work with. <laughs> sure. And, um, I, uh, you know, I'd always thought to myself, well, this is like 19, you know, this happened in like nineteen twenty. I know they had uh, you know that they 'd had uh, chemical uh, uh, chemical defenses against diseases had just started i don 't think they 'd gotten to the sulfa drugs yet I know they didn 't have antibiotics, but it 's really frightening how rapidly and how uh, uh, how rapidly it spread how devastating it was. And I' wondered whether or not you'd seen any mathematical comparisons between the various parameters as you say the SIR parameters that existed for um, the Spanish flu and that exist for either the uh, h5 n1 flus that we're looking at nowadays. Ebola is not in the same category because Ebola doesn't just mercifully just doesn't spread so easily but I'd wondered if you'd seen um, any comparisons between the various parameters that characterize these diseases.
0: Um I, I ha- actually haven't so I haven't I, I I don't know as much about that um but uh but for instance there's another another member of our department who is a mathematical biologist and and she actually studies the um uh, rabies and vampire bats. And so she uses the SIR model to understand rabies and vampire bats and looks at, you know, all the various parameters that, taught, that, that determine what the spread of the disease is like and how much danger there is for it to spread much more rapidly than it already does, and how, you know, small manipulations in those parameters can actually have a dramatic effect. And so I think that there, there are definitely people out there who, who look at things like the Spanish flu and how it compares to the various influenzas and, and that we have to deal with today and, and how small changes in those parameters can have this dramatic, dramatic impact. And, and, and we could find ourselves, and I think people do believe that we could find ourselves in a situation, uh, you know, comparable to the Spanish pandemic that, that we experienced back then, which is frightening to think about.
1: Oh yes, it certainly is.
0: But anyway, getting
1: back to the book, one of the topics that I've always enjoyed discussing, because first of all, it's a fascinating topic and it's relevant and can be done relatively early in a first semester calculus class, is Newton's Law of Cooling. I heard on a TV show this summer that it's still the gold standard for determining time of death.
0: Yeah, I've always loved Newton's Law of Cooling, and I've always loved that application of it for determining time of death by measuring the temperature of a dead body and then and then comparing that to the room temperature and comparing that to the temperature of a live body and being able to tell how long somebody had been dead. Um, I really wanted to include that in the book, and so I had to figure out a way to do that, and, and so what I did was I made my zombies uh, have... Uh, that they could... Um, uh, they could go into, uh, I'm forgetting the word, uh, that that they could uh, hibernate. And so um, I decided that uh, um, what I would do is I would have them hibernate once they got to a certain temperature. So once it got cold enough at night, they would go to sleep. And the idea being that this virus that had infected their brains had actually liquefied their brains to such an extent that they, the humans who had experienced this virus actually were thrown back to an earlier evolutionary state when we hibernated. And so that then gave me a situation where in order to determine how long it would take for the zombies to hibernate once the temperature was dropping, you could actually use Newton's law of cooling to do it. So that was fun. And I, I always thought that was such an interesting application of calculus. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because I think uh, I, I'm i
1: more than just an admirer of Newton. I wrote in one book that if I, if Time Magazine had had a man of the millennia for the 20, uh, for the years from 1000 to 2000, I would have nominated Newton because he was so brilliant. But I wonder how he got the idea for the law of cooling, considering the fact that thermometers were so imprecise in those days. It was just amazing.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I've never actually thought about that. But that's an interesting point that that he didn't have a lot of data points to work with, did he? Because they were so imprecise. Yeah, that's true yeah back then actually i
1: remember reading that at one stage somebody did a calculation on what absolute zero should be and they came to minus six thousand so <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> either they were really bad calculators or had really ba- or had a really bad model or really bad uh data points and um also uh we've sort of uh, we've sort of briefly touched on this because you looked at systems of differential equations but not only is the Kermack mckendrick model for the spread of an ap- epidemic, an interesting application of systems of differential equations. But another fascinating one is the lotka Volterra predator-prey model. And once again, I'm pretty sure that zombies weren't envisioned when this model was originally proposed.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. But again, here's another application that I just love, this idea of the predator-prey models. And, and if you have two species, one of which is preying on another, how do those populations vary with time? And, uh, you know, the original – one of the original places that that model was applied was to Isle Royale National Park where there were these moose on this small island in Lake uh, Michigan, I believe. No, I think it's Lake Superior. Uh, There were these – this population of moose on this small island and then somehow two wolves managed to swim across – and got to the island and established a population of wolves there, and then what uh, experimenters did is they watched how those two populations varied over time, and initially, of course, what happened was the, the wolves started eating the moose, and the moose population dropped, and the wolf population grew, and everything was great until the number of moose started to run out, and suddenly the wolves started to starve to death, and suddenly the wolf population dropped, and so then they were both low, and then the moose had a chance to recover, and the cycle just continued to repeat itself again and again, and so they've seen this cycle on that island for a long time now where the one population grows and the other one grows and then one shrinks the other one shrinks and this just goes on cyclically for, for a long long time and that would work just as well with this idea of zombies and humans if, the, if you could wait long enough and if the humans didn't get smarter and figure out how to beat the zombies. So if you found yourself in a situation where you thought you'd almost beaten all the zombies, but there were still a few left and you couldn't get rid of them, and then they could make a comeback. And suddenly you could have a sudden spread of the infection and you'd find yourself back in the situation you were in. So I purposely wanted to have a model of zombies where, where that predator-prey model could be applied.
1: Well, I remember the Lockheed Volterra equations because to me they were just abstract things until all of a sudden computers became able to crunch these, uh, crunch solutions out pretty quickly. And somebody back in the early 1980s had written a program called FoxRab, F-O-X-R-A-B, because one of the models of, uh, Predator prey models is foxes and rabbits, and all it did was generate numbers representing you know at various stages of the uh, at various stages of the cycle how many foxes and rabbits there were and I spent hours in fascination just typing in different you know typing in different parameters and watching how the foxes and rabbits Stabilized sometimes, sometimes the cycle stabilized, sometimes they, uh, sometimes, you know, they, you'd get into one in which, uh, either the foxes just ate too much and there weren't any rabbits left or the rabbits grew too rapidly. And they just overwhelmed the foxes. And that sort of comes back to the idea of the logistic equation, because when you see logistic equation in a calculus class, the solutions are always smooth curves. But when you encounter the logistic equation in a class in discrete mathematics, where it's set up using exactly the same type of framework, but the moves are periodic or I should say the moves are discrete from state one to state two to state three rather than continuous curves. You get such phenomena, as period doubling and chaotic behavior. And I thought this was fascinating when I first came upon it.
0: Yeah, I find that that same phenomenon fascinating also. I mean, it's the the chaotic behavior of a system like that, that has an incredibly simple equation that dictates what's supposed to happen in the future. And then you get all of these uh, period doublings and, and chaotic behavior. It's just very unexpected. And, and the, this fundamental difference between the discrete model and the continuous model, which is just, just fascinating. I think that one of the things that I enjoyed about your
1: book is in reading it. I realized not only, uh, Something that a good mathematics book does is it should present, or at least I think it should, there are three aspects of mathematics that have always uh, appealed to me. It's beauty in explaining a variety of phenomena. It's ability to come up with counterintuitive phenomena that you don't expect. And it's ability to reveal new phenomena that you don't expect. And I think your book essentially hit on all three of them to uh, a greater or lesser degree of depth. And I have to say, I really enjoyed it. And I'm glad that you wrote it. And Not only that, I think it's important for books like this to be published because education, as I said before, advised with entertainment for the attention of young people and entertainment is considerably more seductive. I think that we as educators need to get into the seduction game a little more. And your
0: book does that. Oh, well, well thanks. I, I love doing that kind of thing. I love, as I mentioned at the beginning, I love to try to think of ways to get people to listen long enough to see how pretty the mathematics is. And, and it's just, it's fun to come up with, with, with ways that you can do that. And, and I think when I was a young student, I needed that. I needed, you know, some way to draw me in. And ultimately, I did see the beauty of mathematics, but it took me a while. It took me a while before I got to the state where I was like, the mathematics itself was enough to hold me.
1: Well, certainly, if you started out being a writer, or at least aspiring to become a writer, um, I can imagine that that would be the case, that the lore of language was probably stronger than the lore of mathematics at the time. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, anyway, f- uh, could you tell our listeners how they could get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, anybody who wants to reach me can email me at cadams at williams.edu. Um it should be noted that I can I uh
1: I give myself a pat on the back for not having referred to you as Craig during this <laughs> during this interview because there uh because of course the hero of your book is named Craig <laughs> yes, <laughs> and there and it's obviously you're writing it. Uh, um, in uh, Craig is a five letter name beginning with C, as is Colin, so it was tempting, but at least I uh, I held off on it. And could you tell our listeners um, if you have any projects on the horizon and what they're going to be?
0: Yeah, I'm working. I, I'm working on a couple of other new books. So I want to do a book on tiling theory, the mathematical theory of tiling. Uh, where you tile your bathroom floor, and what are the different ways that you can tile? And then I'd also like to do another book in this series. Um, I don't want to do Zombies in Calculus 2, and I've decided I don't want to do Vampires in Calculus, because, of course, vampires are unrealistic, uh, unlike zombies. Um, Oh, oh, of course. And... uh, (laughs) So I don't know what it's going to be, but, you know, if, if people have ideas, they should let me know because I, I, I really enjoyed doing this book. And, you know, it was just so much fun. It was like a hobby. It was something I'd, I'd work on math all day. Then I'd go home and for fun, I'd work on this book and uh, had such a good time writing it um it's interesting that you
1: mentioned tiling because at, uh because uh, i i simply have to insert this because it relates to mathematics and my own my own career such as it was i spent the first half of my career studying basically what my thesis advisor had prescribed for my th- thesis and all of a sudden i had an idea That probably the only original idea in mathematics I've had in my life because most of the, um, most of what we do is derivative or following to a certain extent. And I know my place in the, in the mathematical food chain, but it ended up with applications of tiling theory to fixed point theory and I wrote a couple of papers on that so it's sort of nice to feel that uh, somebody else who has sort of the same idea with regard to education and that education should be entertaining also studies some of the same things that I do in mathematics.
0: Yeah, I love tiling theory. I mean, you know, it's so visual you know, it's one of these areas of mathematics it's very visual, you have pretty pictures beautiful pictures and yet really deep problems and those You know, the the reason I want to write a book like that is there is no book like that at the undergraduate level. And it's a way you could really excite students. If you've got pretty pictures and you've got beautiful mathematics all together, it's a stunning area.
1: Um, I just want to tell our listeners who may not have been exposed to it, one of the most fascinating tiling problems that there is that's very elementary to understand, and I often present it in some of my discrete mathematics classes. If you imagine an 8x8 chessboard, suppose that you have two squares uh two uh two squares adjacent to each other that would be a two by one tile and suppose that somebody gives you a two by one tile um enough of them you can cover the chessboard you just put four in the first row four in the second row four in the third row etc and eventually you've got all the chessboard covered but what happens if you remove two corners two diagonal diagonally opposite corners from this problem. Can you tile the chessboard using those two by one chess board, chess pieces? And what I'll do is rather than answer it, what I'll do is I'll leave that um, for people to look at, because it's a very well known problem, they should be able to find it. And I think it's one that's
0: fascinating. It's a it's a great problem. And it really gives, get across this idea of how you can use combinatorics to solve these basic tiling problems. It's it's great. Yeah. Colin, thank you
1: very much for this interview, and I look forward to whatever you should do in the future. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Me too.